and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guests are Karen Tawney, Professor of Law at the University of California Berkeley School of Law, and Matthew Cortland, a lawyer and writer based in Massachusetts. We will discuss their work on reclaiming notice and comments. So welcome to the show, Karen and Matthew. Thank you. Thanks. Yeah, I'm really glad to have you on. And I personally remember, I I saw that you were working on this project, I think on Twitter or on a blog, and it just hit me how important and and timely this this project is. Um, But before we get into the nuts and bolts of your collaborative work on the subject, I wonder if you could start by, for listeners who may not be that familiar with the administrative law process and how agencies work, but what exactly is notice and comment? Sort of where does it come from and what's it intended to do? Uh, This is Karen. I'm happy to start with that. I can talk a little bit about the history and then maybe Matthew, um, who's more of a practitioner, can can add in anything that's missing about its present day uh, use. So the origins of notice and comment come from basically um, the landmark piece of legislation in modern administrative law, which is the Administrative Procedure Act. And what notice and comment does is it provides an opportunity for members of the public to participate in the rulemaking process. So when an agency um, under its statutory authority is deciding how um, to interpret legislation, often implementing um, very important uh, statutes that govern our daily lives, um, it solicits input from the public, and this is meant to be um, a sort of uh, democratic check on the rulemaking process, a way to ensure that um, that citizens are heard. So it's had a sort of um, storied history. I think originally it was um, it was conceived as a as a vehicle for democratic participation. An interesting thing that happened over the years is that um, notice and comment gained a reputation for being a tool of powerful corporations. So one of the critiques that we begin with is the notion that um, the notice and comment process was essentially a way for industry insiders and their highly paid allies to sort of um, capture or derail the regulatory process. Uh, Matthew, do you want to add anything to that? You know, I I defer to you in all things American legal history since... One of us holds a PhD in that topic, and it is not me. It, it is Professor Tai. Um, I think that the key insight there is really the, the perception, the accurate perception that notice and, t- notice and comment really has become a tool for industry, for lobbyists, for people who powerful interests that can afford to pay attorneys 500 600 700 800 dollars an hour to produce comment products to sort of flood regulatory agencies with could you maybe talk a little bit about what that looks like i mean because it sounds like the notice and comment process has been around for quite some time when did this sort of industry capture start to become sort of an apparent reality and how exactly do industry insiders use uh use notice and comment process in order to advance their own interests? I mean, do they have like a, like a sort of, you know, they hire, hire companies to do this or have people in-house doing it for them? What kinds of comments are they submitting and how do they make it look real? So I, I, it's Matthew. I, I think the first thing is simply, it requires infrastructure 
to monitor regulatory agencies. So when the commenting process, it, it begins with, with something like a notice of proposed rule, rulemaking, um, which is published usually in the Federal Register, uh, also may be the subject of a press release from you know an agency like HHS or EPA. But monitoring all of that is actually quite labor intensive. This is not a process that from the outside feels particularly user friendly. So there, there are subscription services that um, companies can subscribe to uh, trade publications, but also more narrow niche products or larger corporations will, will have people in house who do this work, who monitor the relevant regulatory agencies that are important to their business prospects and flag relevant opportunities for notice and comment when an NPRM is issued. Um, what that looks like in terms of actually producing a product and, and getting it to the agency varies. I, my understanding is it varies a bit from sector to sector. Um, my understanding, again, is, is, is not as in-depth on the historical side, but traditionally the environmental space is is particularly well-developed here, right? So um, actually the, the way that the federal government now interacts with the public for, for a lot of notice and comment is through regulations.gov, which is actually a website property that's owned by EPA inside the federal government because they have done uh, some of the earliest work about soliciting public comment on um, technical sort of environmental regulations. I think one more thing I would add to that in terms of how um, industry has been able to use this tool is that, as Matthew said, they're putting a lot of energy and time into making the comments detailed and they appear uh, well credentialed and they're, um, you know, they appear to be informed by a lot of authority and what the implication of that is for the agency is that the agency then has to spend some time engaging with that comment on pain of uh, judicial reversal of whatever rulemaking they come up with. Um, so I think part of the strategy there um, historically has been just about um, time, you know, taking up agency time and also perhaps uh, using these well-credentialed comments as a way to bend the rulemaking in a way that's more favorable to industry. And also, you know, benefiting from the fact that people on the other side of the position may not have the resources or the knowledge to be submitting, um, you know, comments that would show the other, the other perspective. Mm. Well, so how common is the notice and comment process? Like how frequently do notice and comment uh, opportunities arise? And when agencies get comments from members of the public and from industries and so on, like how many comments do they, do they tend to get? This is Karen, and I'll, um, I'll defer to Matthew on some of the specific policy areas. My sense is that opportunities arise all the time, first of all, and it's not simply um, when an agency proposes a rulemaking for the first time. So in our piece, we also offer some examples of times when notice and comment is 
legally required because, for example, let's say a new administration wants to delay the rollout of, um, of a rule that a previous administration had created, that would also trigger an opportunity for notice and comment. So I think I would say there are myriad opportunities uh, for this. But then in terms of the number of comments, I think those can vary depending on the policy area, depending on how many people uh, know about the opportunity. So Matthew might be able to speak to um, some particular contexts that have arisen in the last year, such as the, um, the Medicaid waivers, or another example would be the public charge rule in the immigration context. We've seen significant rulemaking from the Trump administration targeting particularly marginalized communities. We've seen rulemaking come with regard to Medicaid, where CMS is considering work proposals, work requirement proposals that would basically force sick, chronically ill, disabled, poor, medically complex people to work or search for work and then and navigate sort of complicated Byzantine broken website portals to report those work requirement hours. Um, we've seen significant rulemaking around around those sorts of things. We've seen significant rulemaking around the SNAP program, which is colloquially called uh, food stamp still. There are right now, I believe, three pending regulatory changes, large regulatory packages that would, would change the SNAP program to either reduce the total number of people who qualify for SNAP or reduce the generosity. And I use that term ironically because SNAP benefits are anything but generous, but to reduce the amount of SNAP benefits that people receive who, who do qualify. And right now, like I said, there are three current proposals out there that people can submit comments on. Um, so there's been a shift, I think, with the Trump administration from sort of industry players being the only ones primarily interested in notice and comment to marginalized communities really taking up the tools of notice and comment in self-defense and self-preservation, if, if nothing else. Mm -hmm. So I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how agencies are supposed to use the comments they receive and what role those comments can and should play in both regulation and litigation around regulation. It's a really interesting question and is in some ways a very live question. So um, just in June of this year, there was a government accountability office rulemaking report that pointed to a lot of ambiguity uh, ambiguity on the on the question so it's clear under the doctrine that um, agencies are supposed to consider um, essentially significant aspects of the problem um, so to the extent right that comments are um, suggesting significant aspects of whatever is the problem that the regulation is aiming to address, they should show somehow that they are uh, that they have thought about it, that they are responsive to it. It doesn't mean you know there's no requirement though that they um, take a vote. There's no requirement that they uh, address every single comment. There's not a lot of transparency. Um, that said, and I think Matthew might be well positioned to talk about this, we have seen in the context of the Medicaid work requirements and the, and the comments submitted in response to those proposals, 
we have seen courts essentially hold agencies' feet to the fire over failure to engage with the issues that commenters are raising. We've seen judges use the commenting record to overturn regulations issued by CMS because the commenting record was replete with instances from very well-credentialed, very well-respected professional organizations saying, here is how your rulemaking would frustrate the fundamental purpose of the Medicaid statute. And under the APA, um, the agency is at the very least required not to engage in in decision-making that is arbitrary and capricious. And so when commenting record, the commenting record points out ways in which a rule requiring people to, uh, sick people to work or to lose Medicaid would in fact harm their health. And the statute says that the the purpose of of Medicaid is to improve the health of the population that Medicaid is serving. Um, That certainly looks to a federal judge or has looked to the federal judiciary so far like arbitrary and capricious rulemaking, which is not allowed under the the, the relevant legal framework. And so we've seen that sort of pushback. We've also seen individuals themselves in, in not just professional organizations really start to push back. And some of that commenting, um, at least how I've read the decisions, actually seems to be influencing the judiciary at least a bit. Uh, and so I, I think that's, in my experience in the segment, sort of a novel phenomenon. Um, where you know individual sick people who need Medicaid are submitting comments that aren't just copy pasted. There are these sort of web forms that that large organizations will do commenting campaigns, and and that's a, a great entry point for people to get engaged with the process. But they're they're taking that as a starting point and adding their own content and describing the ways in which having to report via a web portal that has like the hours of only open from 9 to 4 p.m. when the website closes for the day would burden them because maybe they're living in a rural community with very limited internet access and they're living in poverty and so there's no, you know, Xfinity or uh, fiber optic line and, and they need to go to a public library to submit a comment. And so it's actually the case where this is one mechanism perhaps the only mechanism really for the voices of people who are directly impacted by regulation to be heard at the earliest stages of litigation when, when these APA challenges are being made. And are the comments that different people make all available to the public? I mean, you were talking about a certain lack of transparency in how agencies actually kind of interpret and consider the comments, uh, are they at least transparent in terms of kind of availability and access and getting a sense for what kind of commentary people are submitting? So that's a, an interesting question, and it, it gets into a second piece in the series that we co-authored with Professor Nancy, Nancy Chi Cantalupo, um, who has done a lot of work on Title IX and sexual assaults on college campuses and the Department of Education's regulations regarding how to interpret Title IX with reference to that issue. Uh, So some of her concern is that agencies are actually not always transparent. So it appears that they post many comments on 
regulations.gov, and they are available for the public to peruse. And there are examples of that, um, of those comments in our pieces. But if you read the fine print on regulations.gov, it also suggests that they have discretion to withhold certain comments or to simply decide that some are duplicative and so don't need to be posted. It's in short, it's not it's not very clear. So that's actually one of the reasons why Nancy and some collaborators have gone to the trouble of um, trying to essentially catalog at least all the comments are that are available to figure out what people are saying to the agency. Now that's no replacement for comments that have been deleted, but it does in some sense create um, a public repository of something that the agency might otherwise um, have full control over. And if I could add, there's also a lack of uniformity about how comments are accepted. So back in 2006, 2007 was really when the majority of regulatory materials that people were going to be commenting on became available via the web, via regulations.gov. But it's also the case that some agencies accept comments via, for example, snail mail. Some agencies will not accept comments via snail mail. Sometimes there's a fax number. Sometimes there's a hand delivery option. Sometimes there's a drop box. And so there's real lack of uniformity in, in how comments are accepted, what via what sort of courier methods and in, in, in electronic methods comments are accepted. There's also um, a lack of uniformity about how those comments received from channels other than regulations.gov, whether or not they end up publicly available via the website. Some agencies will sort of take their their snail mail via USPS comments that they've received and, and scan them in batches and put them up on regulations.gov. Other times that doesn't happen. And if there is any sort of rhyme and reason governing that, it's just completely lost on me. It, it does really seem to be wholly within agency discretion and, and sometimes varies from one subgroup within an agency, one subdepartment within an agency to another. Mm. So one of the things I thought was really fantastic about your, your project is the way you're working to not only facilitate people being a, people who are affected by these regulations and stakeholders in these regulatory agencies, not only to kind of facilitate them making comments, but also helping them understand what kinds of comments are most effective and, and why. And I wonder if you could give like some pointers for like how to make it easier for people who might not otherwise have done this before to, to submit comments during a notice and comment period, and also what kinds of things they had to think about in terms of making their comment most effective in conveying the things that they care about to agencies. That That's sort of the whole ball game, and I don't know that there's a definitive answer to that question. I, I can just offer some general guidelines that I've, I've that, that come out of really the fundamental question that, that guides this work for me is what is going to be persuasive to a federal district court right now? Because for many of these commenting opportunities, for me at least, the goal is not to try to persuade the, the agency that's engaging in the rulemaking. Um, during the Trump administration, for example, you know, with Medicaid, 
that the leadership of HHS and CMS has made it abundantly clear, just plainly obvious, that they have an agenda and they are going to relentlessly pursue that agenda, regardless of whatever comments are submitted to them. And so what I tell people is that really you're writing to a court. And so the the sort of normal rules for that apply. You don't need to be a lawyer, but you, you want to, for example, avoid profanity. You want to write in complete sentences. You want to make it easy for a judge or a law clerk to be able to read your comment. Um, you, you want to, if you have expertise, because the other thing that's sort of been remarkable to me is the extent to which in the healthcare space, the clinician community has really mobilized to leverage their expertise as part of the commenting process. So if you have particular expertise, either because you have professional credentials or experience, you, you, you want to lay that out, right? You want to qualify yourself as an expert to sort of analogize. And so, you know, be explicit. I hold an MD from, I was a resident at, I did fellowship at, I am board certified in. So for professionals, that sort of credential listing is is very important. If you are, like me, not a physician and you're writing about healthcare, for example, you have experience maybe as a patient, that is a kind of expertise and you want to hammer that instead of writing about, I am board certified in, you say, oh, I have had an inflammatory bowel disease for 20 years. I have in that time been treated by and many different doctors. I've spent so many different days in the hospital. I take 20 different medications, really laying out the foundation on on which you're building. Um, You you are offering the court your expertise. So establishing your expertise and then very methodically, sort of step-by-step, laying out your objections, drawing on lived experience as a patient is a valid form of expertise. And I've encouraged people to to cite that expertise in the same way that I've encouraged physicians to cite their expertise and their credentials. Um, and the actual contents of the comment, that's sort of tricky. And that's where industry has traditionally had a large advantage because they can pay people to sit down and really do a close reading and engage in a relatively sophisticated analysis of a comment and say, here are the weaknesses in this comment. Um, That's something I've tried to do in certain circumstances with Medicaid comments. I've, I've created commenting guides for folks to use in the immigration context with the rules that the administration promulgated to try to abrogate the Flores settlement, there was a commenting guide aimed particularly at clinicians because those were the voices that, in my judgment, a district court was most likely to listen to. And so it is this sort of fact-intensive inquiry for any given rulemaking package about what the best strategy is going to be in order to try to persuade a district court that actually the rule is missing this, this, and this. And Evening the playing field there is is really quite difficult. Thing that I'd just like to um, mm-hmm. chime in on quickly because I don't want this to get buried in the conversation as we're talking so much about administrative law. But I think one thing that is so exciting and important about the work that Matthew does is that it's not only part of a judicial 
record at some point that could affect the state of the regulation in question. But I think the exercise that he is encouraging people to do, it can shape how people feel about their role in politics and how they see their own um, political efficacy. So even the way that he helps people to see and claim a sort of grassroots expertise, people who may not, again, be doctors or nurses, but who have highly relevant knowledge that goes to the heart of the problem that the regulation is purporting to address. I just think that's very significant from a democracy perspective. Well, so I'm, I'm based in Kentucky, and I saw that some of the work that Matthew was doing related to medical care and insurance-related issues in Kentucky. And I, I thought that was really fascinating and I, I think reflected the the things you were just saying about you know people's experiences and so on. So I wonder, Matthew, if you could talk a little bit about that kind of particular notice and comment session and like what you saw as being potentially uh, particularly effective uh, comments that uh, that people might have made. Kentucky had submitted a request to the federal government. Uh, Medicaid is a, a, a federal state partnership and states administer Medicaid programs, but they do so under rules that are issued by the federal government. And the, the federal agency that's responsible for doing that is CMS. And there's a, a waiver process in which states can ask CMS to waive certain rules relative to the Medicaid program to allow for experimentation in the states and innovation in the states. Um, under the Trump administration, what, what we've seen are is a, a professed willingness from CMS. CMS has sent out letters saying, actually, we'd really like to see you ask us for permission to impose work requirements on sick people, uh, on, on Medicaid recipients, on people who rely on Medicaid for the health care that they need to be healthy and to be, to be alive in some cases. And so Kentucky was one of the states that responded to that sort of offer, that invitation from CMS with a waiver proposal that would have imposed work requirements. Um, and under, you know, CMS is sort of in Kentucky's sort of own work product, their, their own estimates would that about 95,000 Kentuckians would have lost access to Medicaid under this proposed rule. And, and for me, that's, 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 that's a five-alarm fire, right? 95,000 people are going to, some of the most vulnerable people in this country are going to lose access to their health insurance. Um, and so there was a, a grassroots mobilization. Um, many different organizations uh, across the country, actually, um, because these notice and comment opportunities at the federal level are open to everyone. So it wasn't just Kentuckians who mobilized, although there were many Kentuckians who mobilized. But people across the country really took this opportunity to speak out and say, here is what a work requirement would do to me. Here is what it would mean for me with my particular health conditions. If you were to impose this work requirement, here is how my health means that I would not be able to meet it. Here is what 
taking away my medications would mean for me, would mean for my family, would mean for my children. Here is the harm that would be done. And, you know, people just flooded, just absolutely flooded um, regulations.gov, the the whole online mechanism with with these comments explaining in excruciating personal detail the ways in which they would be harmed by a Medicaid work requirement. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, on one hand, it was, it was really heartening to see people who are traditionally excluded from the political process recognize that they have agency because of the Administrator's, Administrative Procedures Act and, and seize that agency at the same time it gets really tired begging for your life and exposing the most intimate and private details of your medical conditions as the best leverage that you have in order to beg for your life. Um, And so I just, you know, it's important work. I am deeply grateful to everyone who engaged with the notice and comment process in in defense of of those 95,000 Kentuckians. But I also want to recognize that there's a genuine cost to the sort of work that people are doing by exposing, you know, sort of, of leveraging, for lack of a better word, the sometimes incredibly traumatic experiences of being a disabled and chronically ill person in the United States as sort of plea to the federal judiciary, please stop this. It's, it's not without significant cost. So Karen and Matthew, thank you so much for coming on the program and talking to me about this incredibly important work that you're doing. I just can't tell you how impressed I am by the way you're making it possible and 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 just a little bit easier for regular people to participate in the regulatory process, especially people in these vulnerable populations. Thank you for having us. I I do want to say I've been watching the growth of the pod for a long time. I'm incredibly impressed with the work you're doing to make legal legal scholarship accessible in this in this new venture, and it's just been really exciting to watch the success of the pod. Thanks. I'll echo my thanks. I really enjoy listening to the podcast, and I'll just maybe close by putting in a plug for the Law and Political Economy blog, LPE blog, where you can read. Uh, the post that Matthew and I wrote together, Reclaiming Notice and Comment, as well as a follow-on post, Reclaiming Notice and Comment, Part 2, that we wrote with Nancy G. Cantalupo. And uh, it's part of a broader series on democratizing administrative law. So I think all the contributions in the series are, are excellent. Yeah.
gotta see some office boys there jumping for joy. Tell old Mr. A, calm down a while. You know, that's the only way the center is ever gonna get better. Oh, we're gonna be fun. Oh, we're gonna get scared of it. Take me down. Oh. 